Good morning. Good morning. Mado. Georgie. Simon. Taisha. Michael. Cara. Elena. Chris. Diane. Michelle. Sherry. Welcome on this beautiful Sunday morning. <clears throat> and thank you for showing up. It's nice to have your body and mind and spirit all in one place. You're on Zoom, which is okay, but your body is in one place and your attention is on the screen. So here, body, mind, spirit, attention, all in one place, gathered with all of us. So, very grateful for you to share this practice this morning with, with one another. It's really good to see you all. <clears throat> we have been discussing our root teacher, our lineage holder, Kobenchino Otagawa Roshi. And maybe some of you have not seen what he looks like. This is what he looks like, or looks like. Um, this beautiful, small man. Um, we've been exploring how his teachings have developed, how they influence us, how Owan is part of his lineage, a spirit of practice, and a little bit about his arrival here from Japan in the 60s. He was invited here by Suzuki Roshi to um, help with Americanizing Zen. And when he arrived here in the 60s in California, he really threw himself into the culture. Instead of bringing his own very rigid, uh, very formal training in Zen, he threw himself into the culture of America. As a matter of fact, he was unusual in, the, in that he did not shave his head he uh, very rarely wore his formal ceremonial robes. He got into the spirit of spending money. Uh, so he, he was fairly lavish in his um, liking of the American consumer culture. He also um, had... Um, he smoked weed. So he was a bit of an unorthodox person for a Zen master. Not saying that I, and all, he also drank a fair amount. And uh, this is not to recommend all of his habits, <laughs> but to simply indicate that he he was responsive to 
what was presented to him rather than imposing his particular style. He wanted to learn about what it meant to live in America. And so he became a part of all of that while bringing his own special spirit, which was somewhat um, rebellious, somewhat um, different, uh, personal, than many of the other masters that had preceded him, particularly those in Japan. In fact, he also just wanted to be called Koben, not Koben Roshi, Koben Sensei, Master Koben, just wanted to be called Koben. So he was very down to earth. <clears throat> We read the Loving Kindness Sutra this morning, and it referenced this capacity to live life with what was called an infinite goodwill. An infinite goodwill toward all beings, all beings, indiscriminately. What does it mean to live every day with this sense of goodwill toward all things? Not, not an easy thing to do. This was something that Coben did really well. He was truly indiscriminate in his affection for all things. In fact, when he established Jikoji Zen Center in California, which is where I was ordained, it was originally a summer camp uh, which had deteriorated significantly. And it became a place where lots of squatters, people who had no homes, had nowhere to go, uh, who perhaps now would be seen on the streets in tents and in San Francisco or Oakland, and they found this place, Jikoji, which enabled them to squat. And there was a big community of squatters there when Jikoji was established. <clears throat> when Coben established Jikoji as a Dharma center, he did not throw any of those people out. He included everyone who had been squatting there as part of the Sangha, even though they were not practicing Buddhists. He was completely inclusive um, in his approach to in relationships. <clears throat> not just tolerating people, but actually being affectionate, being, uh, being attracted to all people, all beings, at all times. We know that one of the fundamental truths of our life is that we are in interconnected, that no one of us exists separately from our connections. So we are always in relationship. 
There is never a moment in our lives when we are not in relationship to something, someone, some circumstance, some object. We are never, ever alone. We may feel alone, but if we really examine our true nature, we know that we are constantly connected. There's no gap, there's no break in our connection. However, that rela- those relationships are often imbalanced. That is, the I in the relationship is often far more significant than that which we're related to. So, for example, this book, I'm in relationship to it right now. And it has value because I ascribe the value to it. So it is my book. It's my book. And most relationships drift from a kind of egalitarian dynamic into an I and other dynamic. So that I am the important aspect of the relationship and that to which I am related has value only because I ascribe the value to it. So for example, I have a relationship to a cat. suddenly it becomes my cat. I have a relationship to a house, a house. Gradually it becomes my house. Welcome to my house. It's my house. It's not just a house. Um... I have a relationship with a person who lives with me. Meet my partner. My partner. Even something as simple as uh, my mug. Yes. This is, I have a relationship to this this cup, this mug. This is my mug. (laughs) This is my special mug. This is my special partner. It's mine. And its value, it gets its value from my ascription because I am important. So we go from my, from I, I, to me, to mine. 
This is something Coben and this practice tends to uh, avoid. I want to share um, the typical way in which we are in relationships. This is from George Harrison lyrics. All through the day, I me mine, I me mine, I me mine. All through the night, I me mine, I me mine, I me mine. Now they're frightened of leaving it. Everyone's reading it, coming on strong all the time, all through the day. I me mine, I me mine, I me mine. I me mine, I me mine, I me mine. All I can hear, I me mine, I me mine, I me mine. Even those tears, I me mine, I me mine, I me mine. No one's frightened of playing it, everyone's saying it, flowing more freely than wine. All through the day, I me mine, 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 I me mine. Even those tears, I me mine, I me mine, I me mine. No one's frightened of playing it, everyone's saying it, flowing more freely than wine. All through your life, I me mine. Hmm. What a way to live. Coben was a person who resisted being possessed. And he resisted possessing people and things. So for example, When one of my Dharma brothers wanted desperately to have Coben as a teacher, he focused on Coben as wanting Coben to be his teacher and kept calling Coben, wanting to have him agree to be his teacher. And Coben refused kept refusing, eventually didn't even answer the phone calls. Not all the time does a teacher refuse a student's request to be their teacher. But in this particular case, this student wanted to possess Coben, my teacher. And Coben's lesson to this student was, no, I'm not going to be your teacher. I'm not going to be possessed. And so he withdrew. He also refused to possess students. He continued to disappear, insisting that a student become their own person and not simply be 
a duplicate of him. And so he refused to say that he had students. He just was in relationships. He was a friend to those around him, a guide, a companion. It was frustrating. It's frustrating not to possess and, in a sense, not to be possessed. We want to belong and we want to attach. We, we, we want to, we have, we want to have stuff that is ours. And of course, when we live this way, my house, my car, my job, my partner, my mug, when it inevitably arises that this mug, this job, this partner, this house, this car becomes autonomous as it always was, we go, oh my God, where's my mug? (laughs) What happened to my partner? I lost my job, my job, my thing. So if we live this way with this kind of accumulation, my, my, I, me, mine, we're going to suffer because things don't belong to you. They, you have a relationship with them, for sure. But there they are. They are autonomous. And oh my God, they're not my friend anymore. Well, you never possessed them. But this, this constructed self wants, wants, wants the job, wants the house, wants the car, wants the, the mug, the cat, <laughs> my cat, my cats. So one of the ways in which we establish this separation, let's not say difference, the autonomy of all the things that we are in relation to, is we bow. Bowing creates a distance, says Okay, a little bit of space between us. I recognize you as a different individual. As a set, you're not mine. You, you, you exist in your own being. And I acknowledge that. I honor that. You don't belong to me. So 
<clears throat> bowing creates distance, separation, an honoring of the difference that we are, but we also hug, which is closing that distance. So there are times for bowing and there are times for hugging in relationships. You may have noticed that when you bow to someone, there are kind of different kinds of bows that establish a different kind of relationship. Sometimes the bow is very perfunctory. <laughs> okay, I did that. <laughs> I do a lot of, you know, this one, one-handed bow. You know, there's this, this is half a bow. <laughs> right? Sometimes the bow is like an afterthought. Oh, I forgot to bow. Okay. And so, sometimes the bow is like overly dramatic. Calling attention to how beautifully and dramatically you can bow. So these are all different forms of how I'm establishing a relationship. I just, you know, I don't look at you when I'm bowing, closing my eyes, and I don't really see you. And hugging also. People hug in different ways. Um, some of the hugs are there's very little actual touching. It's just like, I'm here and it's like this far away. Could, should be a bow, probably. <laughs> but instead, you know, it's an attempt at a hug, right? And then there's the hug that people, you know, you always say, <laughs> that's like, you're still, you're really there. You know, they just want to make sure you're, you're really present. Padding And then there is just like the one arm bow, there's like the one arm hug. It's like half a hug. And these are all different. And then there's a hug that's like, you know, so it's crack your ribs, uh, kind of tenacious hold on you. They don't want to let go. It's the opposite of the. We don't, we don't really come together, but I don't really want to let go of you. So it's, it's an attached, attached, tenacious hug. So there's a, all these different ways of being in relationship. <clears throat> so the question is, can we, can we relinquish control of our relationships. Can we let go of the I and know when space is needed to recognize the autonomy of another person or being or thing 
and also times when we come closer. But always knowing that this I, I, me, mine, is not colonizing, (laughs) not colonizing the world. This is mine. And it's very subtle. You know, some people... um, call their parents by their first names. They, don't, they introduce them. They don't, they don't say, this is my mother. They say, this is Grace, or this is Judy. And some, some parents feel very um, insulted by that. But also it's a way of acknowledging that this is not my mother. This is a person I have a relationship with, a very intimate, profound relationship with. But I also recognize this person as not my mother. This also has so much more that she is besides my mother. So it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing. Relationships are hard. Relationships are challenging, and we're always in them. So we need to pay attention to them and how we are, how we may be, we may we may be unnecessarily suffering because we have a way of being in those relationships, which are which is possessive, which is. Um, which is trying to uh, uh, um, make things a function of our lives, of our values. Coben, this is a book of um, remembrances of, I was going to say Coben students, but... uh, there, people who knew Coben and studied with Coben and had relationships with Coben, and they're remembering him with different stories about things that impressed them about him. And this is one that was um, written by a fellow who calls himself Trout. One night, during a sashin at Hidden Villa, I visited Coben in the tent he was sleeping in that week. We talked quietly in the light of a battery-powered lantern. I asked Coben, Okay, so you apparently love almost everyone. But Coben, for real, There must be some people you just don't like. How do you deal with that? Coben reached under a blanket and pulled out a scabbard I hadn't seen before. Then he pulled a sword out of the scabbard. He certainly had my attention. He held the sword between us 
with one of its very sharp sides up. And he said, you and I can walk together on this part of the sword, he said, placing his finger just above the sharp edge of the blade. When I meet someone I'm not able to meet there, he continued, as he slowly turned the blade on its side. I turn the sword until I find a place where we can walk together. This is puzzling. Clearly, he is talking to a friend, a very intimate friend, because they're in a tent together at night, and they're talking together by candle, by lantern light, and they're close. And he says, you and I can walk together along this sharp edge. This is our relationship. We have such an intimate, trusting relationship that we can meet at this sharp edge and walk together. And it's, it's a relationship that's clearly very dangerous, right? When you get really intimate with somebody, when you have an intimate relationship and a trusting relationship, you can walk along that edge with that person. But someone who you maybe, in this case, don't like or have a falling out with, what does Coben say you do? You can't walk along that edge with that person. So do you jump off? No, you turn the blade to a place where you can. You can walk. So it's... It's not that you leave relationships that are difficult or falling apart or people you don't like. Coben was, it was not that kind of, um, I refuse to be in relationship with that person. It's no, I'm going to find a place <laughs> along that edge that I can walk with that person. That is our practice. It's infinite goodwill. Hard as it might be, as he slowly turns the blade to its side, hard as it might be, it's our practice to find the place because we are always going to be in relationship, especially with those we have a hard time with. Especially those. Those are the ones who are always going to be in our lives. So we find a place. Another... Listen, story. Uh, 
At the monastery of Fugai Ekun, ceremonies delayed preparation of the noon meal. And when they were over, when the ceremonies were over, the cook took up his sickle and hurriedly gathered vegetables from the garden. In his haste, he lopped off part of a snake. And unaware that he had done so, threw it into the soup pot with the vegetables. At the meal, the monks thought they had never tasted such delicious <laughs> soup. But the Roshi himself found something remarkable in his bowl. Summoning the cook, he held up the head of the snake and demanded, what is this? The cook took the morsel saying, oh, thank you, Roshi, and immediately ate it. Could you do that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> be a tough one. <laughs> we can do tofu or something. <laughs> of course, it's a kind of metaphor, isn't it? That a kind of similar story to the one that I told about Coben, that when there's a difficulty in relationship, you find a way to resolve. You eat the snake's head and say thank you. No excuses, no explanations, no efforts to make yourself better than you were. You just have an appropriate response a response that maintains the relationship even though it might be really distasteful. And it's done immediately. Like Coben, it, it's no, no thought involved. This is the fruit of our practice that at a, at a critical point you just eat the snake's head. And not as a punishment, but as a thank you. It's not, it's not, even though it might have been difficult, it was maintaining an important relationship in the best way possible. At the moment. And it was unthinking. Can we do that? Can we come into relationship with an empty cup, with an empty mug, with no mug, with no expectations, no grasping, 
no wanting that person to be the way we want them to be because they're mine. No. My cats, they're my cats, so they need to behave like I want them to. Mm-hmm. And if they don't, you know, I take them by the tail and throw them against the wall. Or if the person I'm connected with isn't meeting my expectations, I dump them. Or I yell at them. I don't find a way to tip the blade over or to eat the snake's head. There is a a saying, a Japanese saying, on the lintel of the tea hut. And it reads, Ichigo, Ichi-e. Which means, for this one moment in time, this one meeting, for this moment in time, I am not I, you are not you, we have a meeting, a bowing, a hug, you are not mine, I am not yours, we are co-arising together as different beings at this moment. At this moment, I eat the snake's head, at this moment, I tip the blade. At this moment, I come empty of expectation, empty of hunger for your attachment to me. I come available to what the moment demands. And no colonizing of the world, no I mean mine, I mean mine, I mean mine, day in and day out. Can we live this way? This is our practice. <clears throat>